Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy, in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Uh, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to, revenge, to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Today we come to the subject of worship. And I think worship is a puzzle for many of us. Uh, you may not be aware, but there's been a revolution in the last 30 years or so in Christian worship. Bands are now in. Pipe organs are out for most people. Of course, there's been a bit of pushback. Ancient liturgies that stood the test of time are becoming attractive again. But worship isn't just Christian. It's a universal religious activity. Muslims worship with their pilgrimages to Mecca, their Ramadan fasts. Hindus and Buddhists have their temples and sacred rivers and their offerings of fruit and money to the deities and spirits. And Christians have the same sort of thing, our worship services, whether they're in Gothic cathedrals with reverence and strange costumes, or in the revolution, now in warehouses with rock bands and pyrotechnics. One of the sort of anthems of the worship revolution was this song came out a few years ago that was sung all over the place. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down and say, you're altogether wonderful to me. It sort of captures uh, what people are thinking about worship. Worship is about here. Here I am to worship. We come to the house of the Lord to worship. It's special places and special events, whether it's Gothic or industrial. We worship by bowing down and singing to God about how wonderful he is, whether that's to rock bands or pipe organs. And our language really reflects how we think about worship. We talk about worship services as if we go to church to worship God and we're not worshiping God when we're doing other things like study. 
within our worship services, we have times of worship, as if only some of what we do in church is worship. And even in the singing that we do, some are worship songs and some are not worship songs. Now, I'm not here to have an argument merely about semantics, but it raises some serious questions. What is worship? What sort of worship does the living and true God want? How do we worship God, who's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, sent to die for us and rise again? Well, we're jumping into the book of Romans in chapter 12. Uh, if you've been with us a few years, you might know that we did the first bit of Romans 1 to 5 back in 2016. Uh, in our public meetings last year, we looked at uh, chapters 6 to 11. Uh, the talks are on the website. Uh, feel free to use your time to go back and listen to some of those if they'll be helpful. In the next few weeks, we want to finish the book of Romans, chapters 12 to 16. In chapters 1 to 11, Paul has expounded his gospel, this humongous, earth-shattering news from God about Jesus. You could summarise it by saying, the gospel is God's unbelievable mercy and grace to rebellious, lost humanity. And so far, chapters 1 to 11, Romans has been all about what God has done, especially in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the sending of his spirit. It's all been in the indicative, if you know some grammar. But now, at last, Paul turns to the imperative, what we're to do. And it's important to notice this comes after, at the end. And what does he want us to do? Well, in a word, worship. That's what he wants us to do. Now, at this point, when you say, it's all about worship. That could make it really clear, or it could leave it as muddy as our overgrown fish pond. It depends on what worship means to you. And I think it's pretty much guaranteed that whatever you think it is, Paul has something different in mind when he talks about worship. So what is Christian worship? Well, let me read verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. True and proper worship. The, the word tra translated is logikon in Greek. It, it's the word we get logical from. And that gives you a, an inkling of where Paul's going. The right sort of worship is logical worship. Now, it's, the word has a wider range of meaning than just our English word rational or logical, but includes the idea of rational. That is, our worship, true worship, is to be rational. Uh, as opposed to merely superstitious or merely emotional or non-rational where I just empty my mind and go into some sort of transcendental state. It also encompasses the idea of being spiritual in the sense of it's to do with my whole inner person, not merely outward acts. And it has the idea of being proper, reasonable, true and proper. What God is really worth, the English word worship, has this sense of to give something their worth, worth-ship. Well, what is God worth? Can we as mere humans get it, give him something that he's worth or even close to it? So firstly, Christian worship is rational, true and proper worship. Secondly, we see that Christian worship is a response to mercy. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. It's not to win God's mercy. And this is the place where true Christian worship parts company with all religions and all pseudo-Christianity. See, in religion, in pagan religions and other sorts, religion is where we worship God or the gods in order to get the gods to bless us, to be merciful to us. 
That was true of the Baals and the idolatry of the ancient world. It's true of Greek and, and Roman gods. It's true of Islam and Hinduism today. It's that instinctive, natural thing that if the gods somehow control our lives and we need their help, we worship them so they'll give us the help that we want, give us the blessing that we need. But Christianity starts in the opposite place. It starts with God's mercy. Our worship is a response of gratitude and love. It's not a means to get God's mercy. God's mercy comes first. His compassion and pity, which is all what chapters 1 to 11 of Romans have been about. Before he mentions our worship, he expounds the mercy of God. Let me just summarise it for you. He starts with our despicable suppression of the truth about God. Perversely, foolishly wanting to, to, to worship the created thing rather than the creator. And so rightly deserving the condemnation, the banishment of the true and living God. But, and it's a huge but that comes in Romans chapter 3. Let me just read to you. We're all justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God took the initiative propelled by love rescued us through the death of his son. He died our death for us. He took our punishment. And that turns the world on its head. In chapter 5, he talks about um, sin used to reign in death, but now grace reigns through righteousness to bring eternal life. A totally different scene, a totally different uh, experience now. And he gave us his spirit to enable us to welcome and trust Jesus and live a life of goodness, free from the biting straitjacket of law-keeping. Guaranteed eternal life. One day new bodies just like Jesus, new natures like Jesus. And we were chosen by God for that life, irrespective of how evil we've been or haven't been. That's called mercy. He took enemies and made them his family. He took condemned criminals and gave them his vast wealth. He didn't wait for us to beg for mercy, to ask for it. He took the initiative and made it all available to us when we had our backs turned to him. He paid the entire cost, death and hell, in our place to spare us. We can't entice God to love us any more than he has loved us. We can't earn his blessing, whether it's forgiveness or prosperity or eternal life, when he gives it to us as a free gift. We can't earn it. We mustn't earn it. But religious, pagan worship is so natural and instinctive. We always lean in that direction. I suspect it's often behind the recent shift to begin our church services with 30 minutes or more of, of worship. Why? Sort of in the hope, I think, for many people, of squeezing some blessing out of God. It's the thinking behind our bargains with God. God's got something I need, whether it's safety or, or a job, and so I'll bargain, I'll give him what I think he wants. So he'll give me what I want. It's officially taught by some Christian denominations. You have to earn the mercy of God by your rituals and sacraments. That worship is not true worship. It's not logical, proper worship. Proper worship is always a response to God's prior mercy. True worship always springs from the mercy of God, not mere duty or self-serving. And so it's full of thanks and joyful gratitude. Do you want people to worship God? then fill them with the mercy of God. Help them to drink it in deeply, to wallow in it, to, to reflect on it. Please keep telling me again and again the old, old story that Christ died for me and worship will flow. Thirdly, worship, true worship, is all of life. 
Paul describes it as offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is, offering all of yourself to God. What is God worthy of? Two hours a week? 30 minutes of singing a week? Is he only worthy of that? What about your study and your cooking and your cleaning and your digging in the garden? Now, the only reasonable worship is all of me as a sacrifice. And Paul paints this picture that would have been familiar to people in the ancient world, where, every, where people would take an animal, alive, pulsing, and they would take it to the temple and it would be killed as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. In a sense, the whole purpose of the life of that animal was to die as a sacrifice. All its prior eating and growing up was so it could be a sacrifice. And so us too sacrifice ourselves to God, offer ourselves to him on the altar, at God's disposal, as if all our life is merely to be a sacrifice. But notice, God doesn't want us dead. This is a living sacrifice. We're not much used to God dead. He wants us still pulsing with vitality, able to, to act and speak and think and, and do things. It's about a body given a sacrifice, the physical me, not simply an inner devotion lost in meditation and wonder, but the things I can do in my body as a body. So it's all of me, all the time, totally at God's disposal. It describes it as a decisive decision I need to make to offer myself as a living sacrifice. But notice this is written to Christians. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer yourselves. You might have already made the decision at least once in the past to offer yourself to God, but he urges them to do it again. Why? Well, maybe because the problem with living sacrifices is they keep getting down off the altar. Is that what you want to do? as you reflect on God's mercy to you, as you see that that's the only right and proper response, the only good rational worship, will you do it? There's an encouragement from Paul. He says that your sacrifice is holy and pleasing to God. You might be hesitating, thinking, oh, God won't really want me. I'm so useless. I'm so flawed. I'm so dirty. Now, if you offer yourself to God, he will be pleased with that. He will accept it with open arms, overlooking your failings and faults because of Jesus, welcoming you. Wonderful to be used by him. That is rational worship, a response to God's mercy. That, that's the shape of it. It's always responsive. It's all of life, the totality of me offered to God in service. But what does God want me to be and do as a living sacrifice? If worship is offering my body to God, what do I do with my body? If it's all of life, what do I do with my life? See, I offer myself to God today and tomorrow I'll wake up and I'm still living with the same family in isolation. I've still got the same assignments to do because I didn't make any progress yesterday. I've still got the same messy room around me, the same friends who let me down occasionally and the same enemies who get at me on Facebook. Verse 2 answers the question of how. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We're to be no longer conformed to this age, not shaped by the world around me that's only thinking about this passing age. Resistance is required. Resist the pervading culture that pressures us from friends and TV and Netflix and Facebook and the studies we're doing. 
it is all squeezing you into its mould. What can't you do without? Well, this age keeps telling us you can't do without the latest clothes. You can't do without your iPhone or the latest model. You can't do without your Twitter account and following it all day. You can't do without your travel plans, although most of those have been put on hold now. It just keeps feeding our discontentment. The coronavirus lockdown has been a blessing in some ways, hasn't it? Because we, we might have started to see the lies. <laughs> we can do without many of those things. Resist the lies. And transformation is required. God wants us to be different, wonderfully good, tenaciously faithful, joyfully thankful, content. And that transformation is a process. It's not instantaneous. It doesn't happen at the click of a, a finger. It starts and is sustained long term by offering ourselves to God. Because if you're not offering yourselves to God, you'll be a ready victim of the spirit of this age. But how does transformation happen? If you've ever tried to be a different person, you know it can be pretty frustrating. How many times have you decided that this semester you will stay on top of your studies? You'll get your assignments done early. You won't get behind in lectures. And how many times have you done it? How does transformation happen? Well, verse 2 again. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It happens by renewing your thinking. The way you understand the things that you believe to be true. What is accurate and insightful. Renew of your thinking by the truth. As it takes root in my thinking, my behaviour will change. Now, over the last 150 years or so, psychology has become an in thing. And, uh, and there's been various different theories about in psychology. Freud said that the, our behaviour problems are caused by suppressed unconscious drives. And so the solution is to get in contact, understand and let those drives out, which has been disastrous. Rogers came along 50 years later and said, no, problems are caused by society's expectations on us that stop the real you coming out to the, the, the self-expression, the self-fulfillment. The solution is be true to yourself. Liberate yourself to express who you really are, which has been almost as disastrous. More recently, cognitive behaviour therapy has said that problems are really caused by wrong thinking. See, if I think that I need a HD in order to feel a worthwhile person. I'll get very anxious around exam time, won't I? The problem's not the exam. The problem is my thinking, my beliefs. If you can change my beliefs so I don't need to get a HD to feel worthwhile, the anxiety will start to diminish and disappear. Now, I'm no expert, but I gather that cognitive behaviour therapy has actually got a much higher success rate in changing people than the others. And it seems to me it aligns much more with the Bible's view of what is needed for transformation. It assumes our natural thinking is warped. It needs renewing. It implies that we can work to renew our minds with the truth of the gospel, with God's truth sort of plugged in. It teaches that the path to transformation is through the mind, through thinking. Now, does that make Christianity merely intellectual? as if it's only for clever people. No, because everyone thinks. It doesn't matter your IQ. It's your thinking that shapes your behaviour. And all of us, whatever our IQ, think badly. Our thinking is distorted, sort of like a computer that's got corrupt code. Back in Romans chapter 1, Paul has said 
that because we didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, we suppressed it. God gave us over to a depraved mind to do what we ought not to do. See, we distorted the truth. Our thinking became distorted. And God gives us over to distorted thinking, to depraved minds, to justify the evil we do and even approve of evil. But what's the result of the renewed mind? Verse 2, then you'll be able to test and approve God's will, his good, perfect and pleasing will. The idea is sort of like taking out a $50 note to see if it's genuine and rejoicing when it is. That's the idea of this test and approve. It's not simply I test it, but when I see it's genuine, I throw a party. So let me ask you, what is your response to hearing, knowing God's will? Because I must admit, when I first heard about the Bible's sexual ethic, that sex belongs within the container of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, it grated with me. I thought, I don't want to live that way. But I think my mind has been renewed enough now to see that that is actually brilliant. It's the right way to use sex. It works within that, that environment. I approve of God's will. And so when we approve of God's will, it's no longer this sort of feeling of, oh, well, if I have to do it, I better do it. But I want to do it because I know it's good. I, I, I'm convinced. Like the instruction to forgive. That again, it grates. Isn't it? Why should I forgive somebody when they wrong me? But if God in Christ has forgiven you, that's a new way of thinking. And forgiveness is, is a wonderful thing when it's given and received and, and friendships are restored and you can, you can hug each other and move on. So if I thought that way, if I believed God's truth, if I approved God's will, my life would be transformed. It's by the renewing of my mind. Now, we spent a lot of time on these first two verses, deliberately, because I think verses 1 and 2 set us up for the rest of this chapter and chapter 13, 14, 15 as well. Paul is urging us to worship God rightly in all of life, not just when we're singing, but in the self-sacrificial living to please God, not ourselves. And God is pleased with our transformation, becoming different people, shaped not by the world that lives in opposition to God, but by God's truth, by God's reality. And as that renews our minds, our lives are transformed. And as we quickly explore verses 3 to 21, I want you to look for the ways that it talks about renewed thinking, renewed minds. He begins by talking about thinking differently about ourselves. Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has given. How do you think about yourself? not more highly than we ought, assumes we have an inflated view of ourselves, which seems to be true empirically. Psychiatrists talk about illusory superiority, that all of us have this propensity to kid ourselves when we compare ourselves to others, to think ourselves better. Classic study was done of uh, perception of driving skills in the United States. They asked people to rate themselves as to how they compared to others in their driving skills. 93% rated themselves above average. Imagine that, 93%. Only 50% can actually be above average, but 93%, all but 7% rated themselves as above average. A a survey of university lecturers 
94% rated themselves as better than average teachers. Uh, but it's not just the lecturers, it's the students. Uh, when they surveyed uni students, 87 placed themselves above the median. Now, as students, you actually get feedback, don't you? You get, you get uh, results for your assignments and, and your exams. You've got some numbers to work off, but still, 87% placed themselves above the median. That's what they thought about themselves. Friendships. Again, surveys show that a large majority of people think that they are more popular than their friends. So it probably means that if you don't think, you think more highly of yourself than you ought. You almost certainly do. Well, how Paul want us to think of ourselves? He says with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith. It's not quite how the NIV translates it, but I think that's a sense of it. That is, in accordance with the standard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the faith that we hold. Who am I by the gospel? Well, firstly, I'm a nobody. I'm an evil person who's rejected God and deserves banishment. But on the other hand, wonderfully, I'm a somebody. I'm loved by God, a recipient of his lavish mercy, raised to be part of his family, a co-worker with him, never to be disqualified. I'm owed nothing but incredibly given everything. That, that's who I am. And if I can really believe both sides of that, that's transforming. Humble, but not worthless. Valued, but not needing to compare myself. Not getting into that ugly competitiveness. And there's also a positive way he wants us to think about others, especially our church. Uh, verse uh, 4, just as each has one body with members, uh, and those members don't have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. He's talking about church, a local church. He presumes that you're going to belong to one. And Paul says he wants you to worship when you go to church. But I suspect in a very different way to how you think about worship when you go to church. He talks about us as being members of the body. Not like the member of a club where you sort of pay your dues and you get all the benefits, all the entitlements because you're a member. It's a very different thing. Member here has the idea of a body with its organs, its body parts. Oh, he says a body is made up of many organs, many body parts. There's hands and feet and eyes and ears and, and lungs and, and skin. And they all have a different function, as you can see. But we're one body, he says. We're not just a collection of organs mashed together. There's an organic unity and each organ, each body part belongs to all the others, belongs to the whole body. Belongs here means is owned by all the others. See, our hands have amazing capacities. Just the opposable thumb that we all have enables us to do incredible things, to pick up a stick, to hold a pen and write, to peel a banana, to pull socks onto my feet and do the shoelaces up, to put glasses on my face. But who benefits from all these amazing abilities? Not the hand. He can't read what it writes. He can't see through the glasses. He can't eat the bananas. It's the stomach that benefits from that. It's the feet that benefit from the socks being pulled on and the shoelaces done up. The hand belongs to the body. All its capacities are at the disposal of the body. And it's working properly when it does it for the rest of the body. Now this communal way of thinking is so foreign to most of us in our individualistic West, that it just sort of doesn't compute. I remember a conversation that had a deep impact on me. I met this 
lovely, big, smiling, jet black skinned man and got into conversation with him. It turns out he came from a country called Cameroon, which is in the middle of Africa, but was living in Paris. He worked in the embassy, the Cameroon embassy in Paris. Uh, and I asked him, um, do you go home often to Cameroon? He said, yes, I, I go home fairly often, um, usually about once every two years. In fact, I'm going home next week. I said, oh, that's good. Are you going to see your family? He said, yes, in fact, that's why I'm going. We're having a family gathering of all my siblings and my parents and grandparents and all my uncles and aunts and all their kids, all the cousins and second cousins. It's going to be a pretty big gathering and they're going to decide what to do with my salary. And I was a bit shocked because isn't it your salary? Why are they deciding what to do with it? But his way of thinking was different. You see, his family, some members of it who had a bit of money, had put it together to put him through uni to get him his law degree. And now everything that he earned belonged to the family. But we think our abilities belong to me. My money belongs to me. My education is for me. What if our minds were renewed and we thought of ourselves as belonging to, owned by, the body, my church. Now, first, I think that's a bit scary. Will they exploit me? What will they do if I just say, I'm at your disposal? But at least to a very different way of operating. Listen to verses six to eight. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with the faith. If serving, then serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's encouraging, give encouragement. If it's giving, give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So if I think about myself belonging, it'll affect how I do it. I'll, I'll just do it. If I, if I can teach and it's going to benefit, I'll, I'll teach. Renewed thinking transforms behaviour. We'll worship God when we gather as church, as Christ's body. Not in the way you might have imagined, but in offering my body as a living sacrifice to God and therefore to Christ. And my church is Christ's body, so I offer me to the body to use what God has given me, whatever it is, to grow and strengthen the body. So I worship God as I teach. I worship God when I serve by putting out chairs and running the sound desk and washing up. I worship God by giving to, to support the work, by leading, by acts of mercy. Even if I never sin, I'm worshipping. But you can also worship God when church is not gathered. And in this COVID season, we need to see that because it's pretty hard to gather. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Bless the, uh, sorry, verse uh, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Renewed thinking changes how I behave in all of life. I don't need any particular gifts and abilities to worship God in these ways. All of us can do it. And love is at the heart of this sort of worship. God loves my neighbour. And so he's thrilled when I love my neighbour. It's right, intelligent worship. It honours him. It worships him. But there are some people who make life hard for me. And they're so conformed to this world that they clash with me when I'm being transformed. How does God want me to think about them? Well, that's in verses especially 17 to 21. I'm going to leave you to read that for yourself and to think about what's the change of thinking that transforms behaviour so that instead of responding to evil with evil, I overcome evil with good. 
So worship. Worship is the response to God's mercy, the right and rational response. Worship is all of life in a messy relational world. I can and do worship God in study and church, in Zoom meetings and cleaning my room, on Facebook and in prayer. Do you find that attractive? It's much more attractive, isn't it, than that token worship of a few songs once or twice a week than back to my godless, uh, secular, worldly life. Uh, Worship is all of life for my God and Saviour. And so the question for each of us is, will you worship God? Will you offer yourself? The starting point is consecration to God. Consecration is a word that's sort of gone out of fashion. It feels fuddy-duddy, but it, it captures it. Consecrate. There's no true worship without it. If you're not yet a Christian, this is part of becoming a Christian, offering yourself to God, no holding back, no token fob off, I'll give you just a little bit and keep the rest for myself, but putting myself wholly bodily at God's disposal. Not to win God's blessing, but because God has been merciful to you. If you are a Christian, Paul still urges you to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Today, and again tomorrow, and the day after. A young woman named Frances Servigal, back in the 1860s, wanted to express this, uh, this sort of consecration in song. And she wrote and prayed this song. It, 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 we know it as a hymn called Take My Life. I'm going to read it through, as I do. I invite you to make it your prayer of consecration. It goes... Take my life and let it be, consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of your love. Take my feet and let them be, swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be, filled with messengers from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose.